I've seen before. Good thinking. Hey, one, two, one, two. Hey, check, check, check. Better? Good thing you did that. <laughs> one, two, hey, check, check, check. One, one, one. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, what? Hey, hey.
you need a community uh, a microphone? No, I, I'll... <coughs> you can no. share? Yeah. Okay. Oof, can't see anybody. <laughs> All right, um, thank you so much for coming on a beautiful Saturday noon. Uh, it's brunch time. <laughs> Uh, I'm wearing two or, th or three hats today because um, as a member of the translation committee, I'm also on, temporarily on the board of trustees. There's always someone from the translation committee, the pen translation committees on the pen board of trustees. And as, as a member of the board of trustees, I am uh, welcoming you to to Pen America. I hope you will spend the rest of the day. There are more activities than anyone can, can come to. Uh, on behalf of 7,000 writers, translators, editors, and other members of the literary community who belong to Pen America, it's our great pleasure to welcome you to the 14th annual Pen World Voices Festival of International Literature. The Translation Committee believes that our mission is the bedrock of the World Voices Festival. It was founded by Salman Rushdie with Esther Allen, who was a translator? Who is a translator? Who was the uh, head of the translation committee at the time, the chair, and the director of literary programs? Without translators and translation, there would not be a World Voices Festival. As today's panelists, whose books in English you can see on the table and and purchase, and I forgot the second book you had. Show, show. PEN America stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect open expression at home and abroad. We champion the freedom to write, recognizing the power of the word to transform the world. Our mission is to unite writers and their allies to celebrate creative expression and defend the liberties that make it possible. PEN has now merged with PEN USA, and so it reaches all 50 states, and its intention is to become a, an entity in all across the country. Um, we work to ensure that people everywhere have the freedom to write, to convey information and ideas, to express their views, and to access the views, ideas, and literatures of others. Open expression is under, now under siege in many countries. Even in a country like Spain, rappers are being put into prison for criticizing the monarchy and their lyrics. There are other, other issues that perhaps will come up in the conversation. Um, there are many big names at the festival, but we believe that most literature takes place beyond the media spotlight. Today we are grateful to the Poetry Foundation, the Institut Ramon Llull, and Other Stories Press and Feminist Press for bringing these wonderful speakers here, and to Ruben for walking over from NYU. <laughs> uh, translated literature often falls even farther beyond that spotlight, and minoritized literatures, literatures that live in contact with a major language group such as English, Spanish, or French, have particular richnesses and face particular challenges. Today we will explore the particularly rich panorama of the Spanish spheres of influence. I, in alphabetical order, I'm going to uh, introduce everybody. Um, Alicia Kopf is a writer from Girona. Actually, that is the pseudonym of Ima Avalos. And her novel is Brother in Ice. It's been translated by Mara Feilisum and from and other stories press. And unfortunately, it won't be coming out till June. But it, I can tell you it's just a beautiful, beautiful intertextual text. Um, Melibea, Trifonia Melibea Bono is the author of four novels, 
this is her first novel translated into English. By, it, it's been brought out by Feminist Press. And uh, Judith Santo Pietro, uh, I'm sorry, alphabetical order. It's Ruben Rios Avila uh, is the director of the program of uh, literary creation at NYU, Creación Literaria. And he has come under his own steam, as I said. Um, I was reading his blog yesterday and his, his, his thoughts on, um, on creation, on queerness, on traveling, on diaspora are absolutely brilliant, and I recommend that you, that you read them. And I, I, don't, I didn't ask you, Ruben, if you have books available for sale. I, I, I didn't bring them. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sorry. Um, and Judith Santo Pietro uh, has come from the University of Houston uh, with the Poetry Foundation. She has a, a book published, Palabras de Agua, and a new one about to come out, Tio Juanaco, Poemas de la Madre Coca. Uh, so, let's get started. I have asked them to think about uh, the places where languages, their languages come into. Oh, don't tell me I've lost it. Okay. I have to wing it. Um, when, there's a, when there is a, a major language, a dominant language, like English, Spanish, or French, uh, the other languages that come into contact with it um, suffer a certain kind of, um, well, suffer or are privileged to have a certain kind of relationship. In every case, I think the the situation is different. In, in Spain, Spanish, we're going to be discussing the case of Spanish today. In Spain, of course, there are three other major languages in Spain beyond Spanish. There's Catalan, Galician, and Basque, and in fact, there is also uh, Aranés, which is what they speak in, in it's, a, it's a derivative of Occitan. Um, in Mexico, there are multiple indigenous languages, and uh, Alicia Kopp is from, from Catalonia, so I'm hoping that she will make reference to that situation. Judith Santo Pietro is from Mexico, and she will talk about the relationship of Spanish to Nahuatl and indigenous languages. Trifonia Melibe Albono is from, um, from Equatorial Guinea, and she spe speaks her native language is Fang, and she writes in Spanish. And Ruben, Santo Piet, uh, Ruben Rios Avila is the person, uh, Spanish is a particularly interesting case because in, in many places it's the dominant language, but in the United States, Spanish is the minoritized language. So uh, Ruben, of course, is from Puerto Rico, where Spanish is the native language. But I'm, I'm hoping that he can make reference also to the situation of, of Spanish in the U.S. Um, so let's get started. Uh, Alicia, I, I would like everybody to speak for about five minutes about their relationship to their two or more languages, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little more. Well, first of all, uh, Thank you very much, uh, Marianne uh, and the PEN organizations for inviting me and inviting us. Um, this is a very complex uh, question. Uh, I will try to, to answer you and to put you in a context, uh, my context, which is the, the Catalan one. You may know something about Catalonia, lately have been uh, on the news. Um, Catalan is a about like the people who, who live in Catalonia are seven million people. Uh, most of us are bilingual, so 
Catalan is a, a language that we use a lot, but not everybody. And uh, my generation has used Catalan in a different way than my father's generation, because you may know that Catalan was uh, forbidden for the Franco dictatorship for almost uh, 40 years. So uh, my parents had to learn Catalan on their own. Uh, it was not officially used. And uh, in the 80s, after the, uh, after the Franco's death, all the institutions tried to uh, make the Catalan like uh, an institutionalized language. And, and public schools, uh, again, teach the children Catalan as, a, as the main language. So my relationship with Catalan is very natural. It's not like uh, uh, our parents that had to fight for it. Uh, Catalan was on the media, uh, was naturally used, and uh, had a natural cohabitation with Spanish. Uh, my case is also very typical because uh, the purely Catalan people is not as many people. We have had many uh, immigrants uh, coming into Catalonia for, since the 50s, more or less, immigrants that came from the south of Spain and that didn't speak Catalan, they speak Spanish. So I'm the daughter of uh, one of these immigrants that came from, this, uh, from the south of Spain and a Catalan, a Catalan woman. So in my, in my home, uh, both of them talked to me in Catalan, but when Spanish was used, was in a very familiar way too, without any prejudice for, for any of both languages. So having said that, I have also uh, to say that I my background is on visual arts. So in visual arts, it's almost impossible that anyone ask you if your vehicle of expression is in German or English. So you are images. Images are not English, Spanish, or uh, they don't coexist in these power relationships. So for me, hearing about all these political issues around your media of expression is a very new thing. And I have had to, to think about it. And um, as, a, as a writer, uh, a, a writer who is a visual artist and thinks more uh, about images and scenes than, uh, than has a, per well, I don't have a particular love for the media in itself. No? I'm, I don't consider myself like a big collector of words. I need them as a, as a tool, but I don't see them as a, an end. And for me, the story is something that uh, needs worse to be done, but uh, it's, it's something that pre-exists as a, as a concept. So when I translate myself, for instance, I do transla translate my book from Spanish into, pardon, from Catalan into Spanish, uh, it was like power a liquid from one vessel to the other. So they were very different vessels. Uh, it was difficult in a way, but uh, there was a soul that, that was the same. You know? And Catalan and Spanish are sometimes similar because it's a, a, a Latin language, but sometimes very different. Like to say birth in Catalan is usel, and in Spanish is pájaro. No? Usel, pájaro. Wow. No? So that, that's a big difference in, in rhythm, in, almost in soul, no? because uh, in Catalan can be very soft sometimes. So writing in Spanish was for me like adding always more angles and syllabs to, to words. It was harder. So it's, uh, it's like dancing another music. Huh? 
So uh, it, I consider it like a, a big richness to be able to translate yourself into two languages because it makes you, when you translate a text to the other, you, you do, as you may know, all of you, like a big exercise of understanding every word, everything you say. So um, I think being able to travel from language, one language to the other enriches the story. So that's why, that, that's my story. I, I don't know if I uh, have an uh, uh, answer to all of your questions because they're very, very uh, deep and, and maybe I would need more time. But if you want me to explain any of these particular issues, I, I can do it. I think we will, um, I, I think there will be a conversation after mm -hmm. each of you sort of expresses your, your relationship to, to the two languages. Mm -hmm. And then you can all talk and then we'll also open it up to the, to the audience. So that was wonderful. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Um, so, um, Melivea, would you like to address the same questions? Melivea, it's her first time in the stage. She doesn't speak English, so she will be translated by Daniel Scher. Bueno, eh, en Guinea Ecuatorial yo no sé si hablar de, del castellano como una lengua dominante, porque hay un antes y un después en lo que tiene que ver con el país antes de la colonia y después de, de las independencias. I don't know if in Equatorial Guinea it would be proper to speak about Spanish as the dominant language, because in Equatorial Guinea there was a point of inflection uh, before uh, <coughs> in times of the colony and then after independence. Porque eh, el país está compuesto por al menos siete grupos étnicos y cada grupo étnico habla una lengua diferente. De tal forma que si antes de la, si durante la colonización se veía el castellano como una lengua de dominación, después se convirtió en una lengua de integración interétnica eh, para la construcción del Estado. The country is made up of at least seven ethnic groups, and uh, each of which speaks its own language. So, although it's true that under the colonial period, Spanish was viewed as a language of domination, after independence it became viewed as a language of integration, which uh, served to unite the uh, different ethnic groups. En todo caso, la lengua que a día de hoy se podría definir como lengua dominante sería eh, la lengua fan, que es la lengua mayoritaria, y se utiliza en la administración para comunicarse, no para escribir. En any case, what we could define today as the dominant language would be the fan language, uh, which is the majority language, and it's used uh, as a tool for communication in the administration, but not for writing. Sí, y aparte de la lengua fan, también está el pichinglis. El pichinglis es 
el inglés, eh, uno se podría llamar el dialecto del inglés, un inglés mm, mal hablado, pero que también es de un grupo étnico. Entonces el castellano en Guinea Ecuatorial, eh, una buena mayoría habla el castellano, una buena mayoría de la población, pero también es verdad que eh, en la administración la lengua oficial es el castellano, pero la lengua de comunicación muchas veces es la lengua fan y el pichi. So, we could say that Spanish is spoken by a good percentage of the population, a majority, but it's also true that while uh, Spanish is the official language of the administration, the language of communication is either Fang or Pidgin English. En cuanto a, lo, a mi trabajo, eh, yo escribo y también hago eh, trabajo feminista y LGTB, Realmente eh, es muy difícil trabajar con colectivos eh, socialmente excluidos en, en, en varias lenguas que tú no conoces. Por ejemplo, yo pertenezco a la lengua Fan y hay siete etnias que no son la Fan. Es difícil hacer un trabajo con enfoque de género y el GTV cuando no conozco las demás lenguas. As far as my own work, uh, I write and I do work on feminist issues and LGTB issues, LGTB issues, and it's very difficult um, to work with socially excluded groups. Uh, I speak Fan, but there are the seven ethnic groups I referred to before, um, and it's very difficult for me to have a gender LGTB focus when I'm working with groups whose language I don't know. Yo me identifico con eh, el castellano y me identifico con la lengua fan. Sin embargo, en el momento de escribir, en el momento de trabajar, como decía antes, tengo eh, ciertas ciertas dificultades y yo creo que el, el Estado guineano me debe el derecho de no haberme enseñado las lenguas étnicas. I have some, uh, I, I feel identified with Spanish and Fang, uh, nevertheless I do have some difficulties when I write, and I think the uh, Guinean state is at fault for not having taught me the ethnic, ethnic, ethnic languages, the other ethnic languages. ¿Por qué? Porque eh, las mujeres y las personas LGTB somos... Eh, un colectivo excluido. El sistema educativo tiene sus, sus debilidades. Entonces, si, si el sistema educativo tiene debilidades, los, los colectivos excluidos están excluidos también del sistema educativo. Why? Because members of the LGBT, LGBT groups and women are excluded and the educational system uh, has its weaknesses, and one of those weaknesses is that these groups are excluded from the educational system. 
En, en la escuela se estudia en castellano, en Guinea Ecuatorial, pero aunque la Constitución reconoce el derecho a la educación como un derecho fundamental, las mujeres embarazadas no pueden acceder a la educación. En y la Constitución también reconoce, la Constitución establece que el, el aborto está prohibido y está penalizado por ley. La Constitución también establece que el aborto está prohibido y está penalizado por ley. De tal forma que las instituciones del Estado, por un lado, presionan a la mujer para que no, no se quede embarazada, se prohíbe la introducción voluntaria del embarazo, uno, se prohíbe a la mujer embarazada acceder a la escuela, pero por otro lado, la cultura, las culturas étnicas presionan a las adolescentes para embarazarse. So, on the one hand, the state, um, pressures women not to become uh, pregnant uh, and not to go to school, but on the other hand, the um, local, the ethnic cultures pressure women to get pregnant. Entonces, la consecuencia de esas situaciones que se encuentra a colectivos como las mujeres, el colectivo LGTB sin... Eh, sin el acceso completo a la educación, por lo que hay muchas personas de, hay muchas mujeres y personas del GTV sin formación, pero también el problema de que las lenguas étnicas no se enseñan en clase y eso tiene como consecuencia que los grupos se concentran en, entre sí. No hay no hay diálogo interétnico en lo que tiene que ver con el feminismo y el tema del GTV. And the consequence of that is that women and LGTB uh, groups um, do not have total access to education, do not have complete access to education, and many are uneducated. And uh, the fact that ethnic languages are not taught in class means that the ethnic groups have entonces en ese contexto es muy difícil que una persona que escribe su, el contenido de lo que escribe llegue a gran parte de las mujeres and in that context then it's very difficult for the content of a writer's work to reach most women. Está bien que el libro se haya traducido al inglés y estoy muy contenta, pero me hubiera gustado mucho que las mujeres de las diferentes etnias pudiesen leer eh, mis obras, porque yo creo que es, eh, la, eh, es la mejor forma de que pongamos eh, en común lo que nos une a las mujeres guineanas la comunicación. I'm very happy that the book was translated in English. I think that's very positive, but I would have liked women 
from the other ethnic groups to have been able to read my works because I think that's the, way, the best way for us to um, join the voices of different uh, 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 <coughs> women through communication. Creo que ocupa todos los minutos. No, <laughs> no pero eh, has introducido muchos temas. Vamos a seguir. Um, vamos a seguir con Rubén Río. Ah, sorry. <laughs> okay, let's go on with Rubén and, and then with Judith and then we'll all talk among ourselves and I'm sure everybody will have questions for Melibeato. Gracias, Rubén. Hello. Good afternoon to all of you. I'm very happy to be here. Happy you guys. I don't trust myself uh, when improvising, so I wrote, I wrote down a few ideas. Could you go closer to the mic? Oh, okay. Do you hear me better now? Okay. Uh, much of uh, who I am by being Puerto Rican is entangled with the uh, colonialist condition of the place where I was born, which affects both my experience of nationality and my relationship to what is usually understood as the mother tongue, a term which I'm not particularly happy with, but we'll talk about that. Puerto Ricans are particularly creatures of translation, I would say. Actually, our very political status could be construed as a vexing case of juridical mistranslation. In Puerto Rico, the political status is called Estado Libre Asociado, Free Associated State, which is a paradox in itself. <laughs> Whereas in the United States, the same status is called Commonwealth. Because Puerto Rico is and is not at the same time the United States, the Estado Libre Asociado is predicated upon the legal fiction of a shareable sovereignty between the colonized territory and the colonizer, whereas the federal notion of a commonwealth is predicated on the constitutional, I mean the American constitution, understanding of the American nation as the sole possessor and guarantor of its own non-shareable sovereignty. My uh, academic and literary vocation as a writer in Puerto Rico grew under the influence of a Puerto Rican cultural intelligentsia that saw cultural nationalism and the defense of Spanish uh, as its most urgent political agenda. If we could not be a nation state, then we had to be a culture state, and that culture had to be and had to happen in Spanish. Until Puerto Rico was granted a measure of political autonomy In 1948, colonial officials rarely bothered to learn the language of the colonized. Meanwhile, they sought to impose English on Puerto Ricans through a variety of coercive practices in the schools. More recently, as the pro-statehood and pro-commonwealth parties have become the two interchangeable majority parties on the island, successive administrations declare either Spanish and English or Spanish as the sole official language of the island. So the official language of the island depends upon what administration is governing at a given, uh, at a given time. I must say that I do not fully adhere to this long-standing tradition of either the defense of Spanish 
as our national language or of cultural nationalism as default nationalism in the face of lack of a nation state. And I don't because Puerto Rican reality is too complex to subsume it under one language, uh, on the one hand, and uh, uh, on the other uh, hand, uh, the notion of, of, uh, of cultural nationalism sometimes, to me, is too constrained a notion. There's more than it leaves out than what it actually counts in, and I find that to be kind of uh, troubling. After having lived in the mainland, and I'm going to use mainland island terminology here, for a good portion of my adult life, <clears throat> I have learned, and I am still learning, to reshape my national and political identity from the standpoint of the uh, Puerto Rican diaspora. Seeing mainland Puerto Ricans as a defining element of an identity no longer perceived exclusively from the privileged standpoint of the island as the physical and geographical site of a culture, nation, or even a Spani uh, as Spanish as the natural site of a mother tongue. At the beginning of the century, I wrote a book titled La Raza Comica, The Comic Race. It was a collection of essays written in Spanish, except for the final essay, which was actually written in English. I made the decision to do this, turning the book into some form of hybrid, not entirely governed by the common understanding that part of what makes a book a book is the notion that it is a prolonged meditation that occurs inside, within the confines of a given language. One of the main reasons for my doing this had to do with my decision to use the final chapter as an occasion to come out as a gay man and to propose that the main arguments exposed in the book were the result of the essential conflation within me of my national identity, my gender identity, and my sexual identity. Since my coming out process effectively took place in the mainland after the Stonewall years while in graduate school here in New York, I felt it was legitimate to render those experiences in the language where I lived them. It was also a way of forcing the entire rest of the book written in my Puerto Rican Spanish to be reread from the standpoint of my English, a half-broken, part-academic, part-literary, colonial English of a Puerto Rican forcibly diasporized, in my case, by the unrelenting needs of my romantic and sexual desire. Colonialism not only takes your nationality hostage, it does the same thing with your sexual desire, your ethnicity, and your gender identification, which explains the title of my book, The Comic Race, The Human Animal is Not a Coherent Cosmic Being Tethered to a Unifying Defining Element, but a Comic Amalgam of Disparate Urges, Some More Unrecognizable Than Others. Finally, I would like to inscribe much of what I have just said within the philosophical framework of two basic ideas that have informed my way of thinking greatly. One of them is from Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher, and it comes from his book, Monolingualism of the Other. It is a beautiful and wise political and linguistic paradox 
that I will just quote. I only speak one language. I never speak only one language. No language is ever one. End of quote. The second idea comes from Walter Benjamin's The Task of the Translator, which reads as follows, and I quote, The task of the translator consists in finding that intended effect upon the language into which he is translating, which produces in it the echo of the original. In a good translation, both the original and the translation become recognizable as fragments of a greater language. End of quote. Which, in a nutshell, amounts to say that there is ultimately no mother tongue. Languages do not have mothers, and mothers are not in the world to tether you to an origin. Thank you, Robin. Um, but Benjamin does think that it's the language of God. <laughs> I don't know if that's better. <laughs> yeah, that's what Spaniards used. Uh, a king, I think, I see. said that. Yes, that's right. Wasn't it Felipe II? Uh, probably. Or, or either that or Carlos, or Carlos Quinto. Quinto. Carlos Quinto, who spoke to, uh, to his mother in German, to his uh, uh, lover in French, and to God in Spanish. In Spanish, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I would never have thought Carlos Quinto and Walter Benjamin had anything in common. <laughs> uh, Judith Santo Pietro, would love to hear your thoughts. Nani Yolpaki Tlawel Pampa Tojuantin Tikistoke Panitlek Spiali Sansesco Tlaskamatimiak Marian Tlaskamatimiak Ikanoyolot Yankwik Tlakwilok. I want to thank to Marianne and my new friend writers for being here in this festival of literature. So, um, first of all, I, I want to say that um, Nahuatl wasn't my mother tongue, and I'm quite sure that every one of you in this room now or have heard before uh, what is Nahuatl and is the language of the Aztecs. It is not an accurate term, but it is most common um, call in this, uh, with this concept. So I share this story uh, with other uh, native speakers of uh, indigenous languages in Mexico. In Mexico, there are more than 65 uh, languages and around 324 uh, dialects uh, that, are, that are in danger. Um, and I think uh, the state took an important role of this process of disappearing languages, of vanishing languages there. And I think uh, that there are many reasons uh, that what is this still happening. And one of them are, are the remains of colonialism and racism and discrimination. And I think we are sharing all these aspects of uh, our mother tongues of languages. Um, but. I would say that I have been in contact with the culture, with the Nahuatl culture, because my family is Nahuatl, because I was uh, exposed to the rituals or gastronomy or uh, some um, aspects of, of Nahuatl into Spanish, because 
uh, these two languages are uh, very close. Um, Spanish is the lingua franca, the lingua of communication among indigenous peoples uh, in Mexico, and I think all over Latin America and also here in the United States. Um, so I was uh, leading a project about literature in Mexico because in the 70s uh, there was a movement um, founded by indigenous uh, writers in Mexico where this movement was uh, very related to the uprisings against uh, the political party in power uh, then and up until now. And I realized that at that time with this project, I wasn't committed enough with this movement on literature because even when my mother, uh, with, even with my, when my grandmother spoke Nahuatl, I wasn't learning this language. So I decided to commit uh, learning uh, this mother tongue. So this decision has three different aspects, and the first one is political, because I realize that just speaking, like in this event, has a very political importance in itself, and it was related to uh, the production of, of writing. I started writing poetry and narratives, and now what I, I don't know if it's good poetry, but I do my best. Uh, and in a professional in a professional terms, I would say that learning a native language is important if we see this process with uh, the new ways of migration, the new ways of indigenous migrants into the United States. Here in New York, there are more than 14 uh, indigenous peoples cohabiting with other languages as English or Catalan or other, uh, other languages from around the world. Uh, just yesterday that we have an event with more than around, uh, we are collecting more than around 1,800 languages in an anthology. And I, and I realized that the importance of speaking a native language is very related to a humanitarian crisis because these people who are coming here seeking for refuge or seeking for a better life, pursuing what we call the American dream of life, are, are isolated. They, I was requested some weeks ago to interpret to, for a family in Houston who uh, were asking for help to uh, find a transla translator in, in Nahuatl. I, I didn't do that task because I think it's a sensitive matter, but I think that writing, it should be related to uh, share with the people these tools uh, to support them in this process of seeking refuge. Um, my other relation uh, with Nahuatl is, as I said, uh, with migration, because I came to the United States around six uh, years ago, and I was uh, sharing these tools with migrants in a group with women, indigenous women, who wanted to tell their stories of violence, uh, to tell their stories of, of how they are living here isolated, and how they are 
uh, trying to establish a new territories of indigenous people. So I realized that identity in this new context uh, doesn't, doesn't come with just the language. Language is not the, how do you say vertebra? Vertebra. Vertebra. <laughs> Backbone. Uh, to, Backbone. Yeah, to shape identities because they are trying to uh, settle up these uh, new communities through dances, through gastronomy, through other expressions of, of culture. So they're trying to uh, settle these communities and be part of this society, American society. They are learning English too. So uh, I could say that this is very powerful. As writers, we should be committed not just to write their stories, to speak uh, for their, I think we should commit to share the tools we know in order they can speak by themselves. Um, thank you, Judith. Judith was um, interpreting at, a, at an event last night called Ketchaptun uh, from the Endangered Languages, Language Alliance. And the, uh, one of the directors of the organization told us that in New York right now there are 800 languages, which is the most languages ever living together, most languages living together in the world right now, but probably the most languages living together in the history of the world. So this is particularly relevant, I think. Um, so I would like to invite you to ask one another questions. I think there are really, really interesting themes. There's a, there's a queering theme, and I think that's really relevant to translation. There's a diaspora theme. Uh, there's the question of self-translation as well. And um, perhaps we're going to have a second block of questions about the specifics of translation, but I would like people to talk about whether they have had any thoughts on listening to their fellow speakers. Maybe we'll start with this end this time. With me? See? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Um, I had a question uh, for uh, the friend from New Guinea. From, from Melibea. Melibea. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you have an explanation for why tribal languages are not taught in schools? Uh, it, would it be correct if, if I venture to guess that uh, it, it is convenient for the, pur the purposes of the, of the state uh, to keep uh, the different parts of a, uh, of, uh, of a country in this, uh, in this case um, isolated one from the other? What, what, what is your take on that? Bueno, eh, esa podría ser, podría ser una de las razones. That could be one of the reasons. Sin embargo, eh, yo creo que también es eh, por falta de un interés. Nevertheless, I would think, I think that it would be, it is because of lack of interest. En Guinea hemos tenido eh, dos presidentes desde la independencia. Eh, ahora en octubre cumplimos 50 años de existencia. We've had two presidents since the independence of Guinea, and in October of this year, it'll 
El primer eh, presidente, cuando llegó al poder, eh, prohibió el castellano. Y impuso el, el fan como lengua de comunicación, lengua administrativa y lengua en general, asimilando a otros grupos étnicos. Entonces, cuando llega el otro, el gobierno, el presidente actual, lo que hace es eh, introducir una normativa que regula que el castellano es la lengua de comunicación, pero tampoco eh, hace el esfuerzo de que esas lenguas que se han ido de alguna manera muriéndose durante los 11 años que duró el primer régimen, uh -huh. se, se recupere esa pérdida. Y eso ha creado una especie de resistencia dentro de las etnias. Mm -hmm. sort of Como que cada etnia considera que excluirse dentro de sí misma es el, el único mecanismo de supervivencia. Y tanto es así que recuerdo que yo soy profesora. Una alumna, estábamos en clase hablando de el tema étnico, ella me dijo que no podía casarse con una persona de otra etnia para mantener la pureza de, de la etnia, de, de su etnia. Y esa, esa resistencia étnica que está, eh, que ha crecido mucho y que, de, porque desde el momento que ya se habla de pureza, y hay un, un enfoque racista a la supervivencia de la cultura de Carania, y eso es un problema a corto y a largo plazo mm -hmm. y dificulta eh, la integración. Y entonces, eh, para terminar, pero yo, yo pensé que eso era, ocurría solamente en Guinea, pero me, después de viajar bastante en, en los países de África Negra, esa tensión interétnica es general, porque los estados siguen teniendo dificultades de, de consolidación y de construcción. Pretty, 
generalized because states are having uh, difficulty in uh, consolidating themselves. I was going to say precisely, Melivea, yeah, on that note, if you, if you may remember when the, many of the uh, states in, the, in northern um, Africa uh, liberated uh, from col different colonial regimes, uh, they uh, were no longer dominated by, say, French. But then, curiously, Arabic uh, moved in and uh, imposed itself as uh, the language of many of these places, and with it, the Muslim rule, so that the dialects that were spoken in many of these places uh, were not taught at school, uh, and Arabic was taught at school. So I think it was kind of ironic that the liberation from one colonial rule, in a way, meant the substitution for, uh, for another. I was going to ask you, Melibea, would you consider that Spanish uh, has um, some, some, a position uh, similar to that in, in, in Guinea or not? May, may I ask a, one question? Just, ¿Qué porcentaje de la gente de, de Guinea habla español? español. ¿Y qué, qué porcentaje habla fan? What percentage of the people in, in Guinea speak? Sí, sí, lo sabes. Sí, 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 entiende y se puede defender hablando en fan. I couldn't give you any statistics on that because they don't exist. However, uh, it is very frequent to find people who, although they don't uh, speak uh, fan, uh, they can understand it. O sea, quería decir que aunque no comprenda el castellano, aunque no hable el castellano muy bien, pero puede defenderse hablando en castellano y en fan a la vez. Lo mismo todas las etnias. And the, and the same way with Spanish, they don't speak it really well, or they, they can get by in Spanish, and the same is true for all the ethnic groups. And in todo caso, con respecto a la pregunta que ha formulado el, el compañero, eh, la cultura política es muy difícil de cambiar. In any case, with respect to the question posed by my colleague, uh, political culture is quite difficult to change. Muchas veces, por ejemplo, cuando en... en en Guinea estamos viendo la televisión e interviene un líder de un partido político. Es como tener a, a Puyol o a, a Fraga delante. Yo lo siento. O sea, los líderes de, del, del, del franquismo ¿no? y, y, y del posfranquismo. Entonces, esos rasgos expresivos, esos rasgos eh, 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 en el momento de articular un discurso, se mantienen, pero no solamente, sino también la forma de gobernar. In, in uh, Guinea, sometimes when you see a um, politician appear on TV, you think you have uh, Jordi Pujol or Manuel Fraga in front of you, like Frankist uh, politicians or people from the post-Franco era, era. And that um, way of ex 
those expressive traits are not just present in people's discourse, they're also maintained in the way they govern. Incluso eh, el artículo de la Constitución que prohíbe, que prohíbe la introducción voluntaria del embarazo es una definición católica de, de la definición humana. Entonces, esa relación Iglesia-Estado es una, es una, por una parte, la cultura política española del franquismo. Mm -hmm. 
uh, we are um, actually I think that artists uh, express themselves as much from uh, their capacities as from their limitations. I think uh, the idea of the limit is 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 is, is actually uh, essential to the very notion of the creative uh, the creative act. And I, I think one thing that uh, artists can can actually uh, dramatize in their creative exercises is this very notion of the limit of um, bilingualism in many ways. Uh, we can think of it linguistically, but also uh, sexually, and uh, it's a it's a very uh, uh, it's a fascinating uh, uh, term. Also, uh, hearing you, I am reminded of uh, once when. Uh, you know that Derrida is the author of this uh, philosophy called deconstruction, a uh, rather unfortunate word uh, that he himself uh, worried a lot about because it became more famous than the philosophy itself. He actually once told me that he was reading the ingredients in a bottle of perfume, and one of the ingredients was deconstructive water. You know, that the that gives you an idea of uh, you know the root that a word uh, can take uh, by uh, by itself. But he was once asked what deconstruction was uh, in one of these forums, and he said, "Well, deconstruction is more than one language." I, I love I love that definition. Uh, in a way, language is bilingual by itself. Uh, people who talk to each other. Uh, we're in order to be able to talk to anybody, you have to translate. Right. You know, just the very act of speech is a is a continuous act of uh, translation of intention, uh, and uh, one has to interpret what the other one is mm -hmm. says with says with whatever um, you know vocabulary I have and, and the meaning I attribute to those uh, uh, to those words. You know, it's um, the present, the bilingualism of New York, the presence of Spanish in New York when I was growing up. New York was a very Puerto Rican city when I was growing up. Now it's pan-Hispanic. There are people from all of the uh, mm -hmm. Spanish America. But um, it that really affected my view of the world. I mean, I was not bilingual in my household. But I was surrounded by Spanish, and it changed the way I thought about the world. I mean, when I went to Catalonia, I was interested in Catalan. When I went to Spain, I was interested in, in the other languages of Spain because I had that experience. And, of course, went on to learn Spanish. But I think you can, there are many ways to be bilingual. You can be bilingual just by contact. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I would like us to, to uh, go on to the question of translation. Ruben has introduced it beautifully. Indeed, when we speak, we translate. Even when we think, we are translating to ourselves, right? Um, and I would like to know my, my colleagues and friends to, to say, what does translation represent for you, for your languages of expression, and for your literary work? Um, does translation help you to level the field of play when being translated, for example, into English um, or into Spanish? Or does it level the playing fields for you or for your literature? Um, do, does it affect the reception of your works in, in your home territory? 
And um, with regard to linguistic diversity and uh, in the literary scene, does translation contribute also to erase the differences between um, your literature and other literatures that have been translated? Uh, this is something I worry about because there are works written in Catalonia, for example, in Spanish and in Catalan, and once they're translated into English, how do we, how do we maintain that difference that comes from the language? Um, but I don't know if that's a problem for, for everybody. So I would like all of you just to say something about your feelings about translation and how translation um, affects the reception of your work. Bueno, whoever would like to start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I would say that translation is a crucial matter um, for me as a writer to spread my voice, to spread my work. But I, I would, I also would say that this is not uh, the same situation for indigenous writers in Mexico. And I'm talking by my privilege here as an international student with a visa. Uh, because this task is, uh, they are they are translating their own work because there there is a lack of indigenous translators. Um, they they are not prepared, and I also think that even when translation is crucial to uh, to spread my work as a product, uh, it is not sustaining a process of revitalization of indigenous languages. So I think there is two phases in, in, this, uh, in this task. And when, when I write in a Spanish and then I do this word to translate, to translate into Nahuatl and somebody else is translating in English, I ask, I, I, I'm questioning myself two important questions. Who I am writing for from my privilege as a writer, um, how I can make visible these stories of migration. So it's always a political event. Yeah, yeah it's very political for me. And situating oneself, yeah. Um, who would like to? Melibeo, would you like to continue? Bueno, sí, la traducción, pues, Para mí representa la proyección, la proyección internacional y como consecuencia de esa proyección la solidaridad, que mucha gente pues se solidariza. Yo creo que eh, muchas situaciones en el mundo se han resuelto porque las, porque en otra parte del mundo hay una presión, ¿no? De, oye, eso es así, está ocurriendo eso, había que cambiarlo, etcétera. Eso, sobre todo eso, dentro del país no me aporta mucho que se haya traducido al inglés, pero fuera del país, sí. Um, for me, translation means international projection, and one of the consequences of that is solidarity. And, um, and, I, and people from other parts of the world can then express their support. I believe that many situations throughout the world are resolved because in other parts of the world, people call attention uh, to these issues. Y lo, uh, and, oh, 
However, outside, I believe it does. Y bueno, para terminar, que el, cuando mi, 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 por ejemplo, es la primera vez, ¿no? Cuando otras personas que han leído mi libro en inglés hablan de, de, de libro, a veces es como si yo no es, a, aprendo mucho, aprendo más, me doy cuenta de, de muchas cosas, quizás de algún error, el, o sea que aprendo mucho con las opiniones, no solamente de la gente que que ha leído en inglés, sino también que lee en otras culturas, ¿no? De cómo interiorizan el, el contenido del libro y también aprendo mucho de, de mis de mis lectores y lectoras. Um, I find out their opinions, and um, not only English readers, but readers from other cultures. Uh, I find that um, I I get a lot of important feedback from readers outside in international readers. Melly Bea told me yesterday, and I hope you don't mind my, my telling, that her Her novel, which is the story, a, a coming-of-age story, it's a story of a young woman who discovers that she's lesbian, a fang, a fang woman, and it, it, but it also talks about um, gender hierarchy, gender violence. It's, it's, it's an incredibly rich book. And she says she's not allowed to speak about it in, in, on, in the Ghanaian media. <coughs> Ghanaian, it's, es correcto, ¿no? Melibea que no puedes hablar del libro en, Gui en Guinea. That's correct, Melibea. You can't speak about the book in Guinea, in Guinea, in the media. Melibea. Sí, bueno, sí puedes. Traducir, sí. Ah, sí. Bueno, sí. Eh, el libro eh, hay una parte. El libro tiene dos, un, varias partes. Hay una parte de género y otra parte de género LGTB. Esa parte, de esa parte no se puede hablar. Está prohibido. The book has various parts. There's one part that deals with gender and the other part that deals with gender and LGTB, and that part is totally prohibited. You can't speak about that. Porque en Guinea y en muchos países de África se considera la homosexualidad como una costumbre de los blancos y difundirla allí es una forma de traer mala educación, como la película de Almodóvar, ¿no? El homosexuality in Guinea is viewed as a white man's contribution and, uh, dis and disseminating this is uh, there is considered bad mala educación bad manners bad upbringing and um, it's sort of like an Almodovar's uh, film incluso hay un libro que ha escrito un chico catalán periodista Max Marc Serena y el libro se titula Esto no es africano. Él hizo una especie de tour por todos los países africanos para saber qué se piensa sobre la homosexualidad y todos coincidían que esto no es africano. Homosexuality as 
to continue with the conversation with the question yes. and translation, yes. and then we'll open it to the audience. So. Um, a lot of things have been said, but I would also like to add that everyone, every time you 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 are translated, you are gaining a new work of art. So uh, being translated is always a privilege and a gain; it's never a loss. Um, people can always go to the original work. So um, it, for me, it has been a huge privilege because you might know that uh, Anglophone countries. Uh, translate into English about 3% of their production. So enter into the, the English-speaking world is, is, uh, is really difficult for, for a foreign uh, author and for a Catalan writer as well. Uh, even for a Catalan writer, it's difficult to get into the Spanish um, mm -hmm. publishing world. So when I, was, I published, and very quickly I, I got an offer to be published in Spanish, uh, my colleagues, my Catalan colleagues, were quite amazed uh, because it, having a Catalan name, for instance, is not good if you are publishing in, Sp in Spain. Uh, that doesn't help the sales. Mm -hmm. So, does that have anything to do with your pseudonym? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I my my pen name was created ten, more than ten years ago when I started uh, making exhibitions as a visual artist, mm -hmm. and for me. Uh, having, uh, like your your name is something you inherit from your parents, so you don't have power on your name. Mm -hmm. But if I create my name, I, I create a magical field where I can be what I want to be outside the, my parents' influence, which I I, uh, I thank, I'm thankful for what I've received. It's not that I deny it, that's why I don't hide my real name, mm -hmm. but I like to have this magical space. But uh, it, it resulted to be a good a good marketing option as well, no, in the Spanish in the Spanish field at least. But I have to say that Spanish readers have been very very generous, and I got two prizes for the Catalan uh, book or edition, and then the Spanish uh, the Spanish um, translation translation got also two prizes. So they want. I think they were competing. No, uh, who's gonna be more like uh, generous to me? So I have to be to be very grateful for that. Did you learn anything about your book when you translated it? Of course, of course. Um, I learned a lot about the power of rhythm. What that uh, for me? What the language does? A part of that. Everyone they have their concepts that are untranslatable. That is clear. But for me, writing is a flux that comes from an inner song mm -hmm. when I'm very concentrated. And that song, it's something very deep that you may have learned when you were very little. And I have to say I have a mother tongue, which is Catalan. Mm -hmm. And that song comes out in Catalan. When, when I translated it into Spanish, it was like riding a squared bicycle. <laughs> no? and, and that is, it was full of extra syllabs that uh, mm -hmm. created a different song. But um, also, it added some other nuance, like um, all, all the, another song, and and that's I think it's good. Also, um, it makes you see all the different, so every gap in the text or the comprehension of the text when when you translate. So, mm -hmm. so it's, it's a very a very good thing to do for a writer, and you can also test the story. I think a good story is like a myth. It resists every storyteller, every style. Myth is beyond style. 
So if you write be beyond style, which is an option for a writer, there are writers based on style, but if you, write, if you try to write for a kind of myth that goes beyond style, translating is a way to see if that story uh, resists style mm -hmm. as well. I, by the way, Ima has a, an interview up on the Pen.org web, website, um, and it's a really wonderful read if you want to hear more thinking about writing in, the, in those terms. And, and Ruben? Uh, I would like to speak about uh, the topic of translation uh, from the perspective of uh, my work as a professor of comparative literature. I, um, I now teach in the creative writing program in Spanish here at NYU, but for many years, most of my career, I... <clears throat> I worked in departments of comparative literature, and uh, comparative literature as a field would not exist if not for the possibility of translation. Uh, uh, mostly at the undergraduate level, is almost solely a field based on uh, translation. And uh, the origin of the field itself I find quite interesting. I think it was the result of the uh, Second World War, mostly when the map of Europe was practically uh, disintegrated and many of the professors uh, that became important figures in the field were exiles from Europe that went to the States, uh, some of them to Harvard, Princeton, uh, Berkeley. And uh, in a way what they did was to try to restore within literature a map that the war uh, had destroyed. So. Uh, it is like a second idea of Europe or a, or, a, or a reinvention of Europe from the standpoint of literature, thanks to the possibility of, uh, of translation. The, however, I, I would have to add that uh, as, as much as uh, this um, uh, industry of translation makes possible the availability of all these uh, texts, um, there is also a downside to it, uh, at least two that I can uh, remember. One of them would be uh, that uh, the more texts are translated, uh, the less people become interested in learning to read them in their original, original language. So the, the success of uh, translation has robbed uh, these works of a potential uh, readers in, 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 in the original, uh, original language. There are works that are almost no longer read in the original language because they are so incredibly available uh, in, in different translations. That's one thing. Uh, the other is that uh, translation as a field and as an industry is not innocent from the um, machinations of capitalism. And, uh, uh, for example, I myself uh, was very astonished when I began uh, graduate school in the Department of Comparative Lit Literature to know of how many f uh, very little texts of the, cla of, the, of the Spanish classics were available in complete departments. Mm -hmm. Spanish w was never popular as a language in complete. Uh, other than Cervantes, Borges, and Garcia Marquez, I would say that those, for, for decades, those were by far the only uh, Spanish authors that you would find uh, by chance in an undergraduate seminar in comparative uh, literature uh, when you compare it to other national literatures like, like French uh, or German or, or uh, Italian. 
Spain would come in fifth, sixth, or even seventh uh, uh, place. So, in other words, that um, if you take a look at what's translated and what isn't, uh, it, it, it shows you an interesting map of uh, power and uh, the power that certain languages have to prevail over others. And in this particular case, it's interesting because uh, the number of, of Spanish-speaking people in the world was not the main factor to push the prestige of the language when the, uh, how many people speak uh, French as opposed to uh, Spanish or, 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 or German. Um, and the reason behind it, I think, had to do with the way English perceived itself as a purveyor and, uh, uh, and um, promoter of culture. Uh, it was the English understanding of what was worth uh, translating that uh, made the decision for the rest of the world uh, about what uh, became available and, and what not. True, and I would love to keep talking about that, but I want everybody <laughs> to be able to ask questions. Um, so we're opening it up to the to the audience. Um, this, I can't really see you, so shout. <laughs> okay. That is a very good question, and that depends a lot on timing. So how detached are from the work? So for instance, in my case, uh, I translated myself about six months after finishing the work in Catalan. So I was quite detached, but still inside the project. So that made that uh, I translated it, but when I noticed that there were there was some possible gap of comprehension, I, I added things. So it depends a lot on timing and also on how, how, do you, how finished you think the work is. I'm sure if I was translating myself now because I'm out of the work, I wouldn't add anything. But at that moment, I, I, I was in the right distance. So it's difficult because some colleagues of mine, Catalan, said I couldn't ever, ever translate myself because I would change everything. In my case, I just uh, translate everything and add some cues or things that made the text more clear, but not change the, the story. But was it more clear for the Spanish-speaking reader, or was it just more clear because you realized that there was something unclear? Exactly. It was more... Uh, to add like um, context clues, context clues. <coughs> that would be the word. Yes. Mm -hmm. I once um, had to read um, a book by Carmen Riera that she had translated herself, and when she translated it into Spanish, it became it was very spare, and you know, in Catalan and in Spanish, it became Baroque. She just kind of rewrote the spirit of of wow. the novel. Yeah, yeah. very. 
strange. I mean, very un- a strange experience as a reader. Um, anybody else? Yes? Bueno, eh, yo trabajo en colectivos eh, feministas y colectivos LGTB. Entonces, eh, son pocas las mujeres y las personas LGTB que, que han leído el texto en su conjunto. Entonces, lo que solemos hacer es, eh, normalmente tenemos grupos de apoyo en los que la gente va, se sienta y puede hablar libremente. En las obras que, que escribo, como también formo parte de, de, de los grupos, intento transmitir eh, las historias de manera oral. Uh-huh. Pero en colectivos, así, en, en, en una sociedad como la guineana, donde está ese problema, eh, es, o sea, no solamente es un problema de Nicos, también es un problema de... <risa> Lo siento. <risa> Um, so, uh, I work with uh, feminist and LGTB groups, um, and <coughs> there are very few, these are small groups, um, and what we do is, um, just very few of them have actually read the text. We have support groups where women can sit down and talk uh, and share among themselves, face-to-face. Um, but um, I also work with um, the transmission of my work through oral transmission. And um, in societies like Guinean uh, society, it's not just ethnic problems. In societies como la Guineana, no solo son problemas ethnicos, sino también de herencia colonial. Cuando eh, Guinea se estaba independizando de, de España, España se estaba integrando poco a poco en la comunidad económica europea ¿no? de la época. Entonces, eh, tenía, estaba en una especie de contradicción, conservar eh, el territorio guineano o integrarse o cumplir las exigencias de la comunidad económica europea, que era liber, librarse de, la colon, de, de un territorio colonial. There's another issue, though, which is the colonial heritage, because at the time when uh, Guinea, Guinea was trying to uh, obtain independence from Spain, Spain was integrating itself within the European community. So there was a sort of contradiction with for Spain, which was should we conserve, we sh- should we keep uh, Guinea, or should we comply with the demands of the European community and free ourselves of all our territory. Entonces, eh, en aquel momento, lo que España para conservar eh, el territorio colonial creyó unos estereotipos 
dentro de cada grupo étnico. Entonces, el grupo mayoritario es el fan y los demás son minoritarios. Entonces, les enseñó a los fan que ellos son los más trabajadores y que los demás, las demás etnias eran débiles, eran holgazanes. So, in order to keep that colonial presence in Guinea, the Spanish government created a very stereotype. The major ethnic group, the Fang, was taught that they were the true workers, and the other ethnic groups were portrayed as being weak and lazy. Entonces, a, la, a las otras etnias les, les enseñó que la etnia Fang era la bruta, y, y eran los brutos y los incultos. Entonces, ese, esa convivencia, esos estereotipos se siguen manteniendo hoy. Y eso ha creado como consecuencia que los grupos étnicos que no son fan, eh, los que son líderes de opinión, nieguen la violencia de género que hay, eh, la violencia de género y la homofobia que hay en los grupos. Siempre dicen, no, no somos como los blancos, no somos como los fan que son muy salvajes. <coughs> ethnic uh, gender violence and homophobia. Uh, they say, we're like the, the white people. We're not like the, uh, the, the, the fang who are savage. Y tanto es así que dentro de los colectivos eh, feministas y LGTB está la, por ejemplo, la que te dice, yo soy la lesbiana fang. Y la otra, no, yo soy el, el, el gay booby. Pero en, eh, en mi etnia no maltratan a las mujeres, pero sufren el mismo maltrato que sufren las demás, o sea que hay una negación del problema por estos estereotipos que se mantienen. To such a point where in the feminist and LGTB communities I work with, um, you'll have someone will say, I am the fang lesbian or I am the booby gay, uh, but they would, and they say, well, in, in my ethnic group, women are not mistreated, but that's not true. Y para terminar eso crea problemas de comunicación. Entonces cuando le dices a una persona, oye, es, es lo que te pasa es estás sufriendo violencia o homofobia, te dice, no, no, es que yo soy indoué, somos blancos, eso no es homofobia, es que mi madre me odia. Y dice, no, tu madre te odia porque tú eres homosexual y no lo entienden muchos. I think uh, Judith had a couple of yeah, last words. If anybody else has a little last words, we're, we're, I think we'll have to we'll have to 
I also want to add a comment to reinforce this notion that orality plays an important role of transmitting and revitalizing a language. Because I have been working with a small groups of women and indigenous people in Mexico, and we found that there is a barrier. We found that these uh, people, uh, most of them are illiterate in their uh, native language. And this is a consequence, not from colonial times, but from the 20th century with this project to Castellanization to teach Spanish to indigenous people. And even when in the past most of these languages have a grammar, a specific grammar, not uh, using the uh, um, Latino alphabet, uh, but another one. But I think that it's important to uh, take, take in account that uh, orality, it's better to work with uh, people in disadvantage. And the other thing that I want to remark is, this, uh, is that many times we are taken into, we are taken for granted that the decision of, uh, of the people take to disappear their language is because I, they just want to do that. And, sometimes we can see all the uh, cultural and violent background of that decision. Not particularly. I'm going to just say thank you to all of you for a fascinating conversation that feels like only the beginning of a conversation and I hope that we'll continue uh, um, and, and bear fruit in, in the future. And thank you all for being, uh, joining with us and uh, see you at the next event. And there are books, there are books to be purchased.
and not for because they were hit for that moment. So they were that you know, I would imagine the translator would have to put a note to that. Whereas the Spaniard would know. Y a veces hay dos, 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 dos,
tal, pero yo vi la intención de hacer bien las